I want to welcome those of you joining us online or from Knox Hall or by radio. Uh, so glad wherever you are uh, that we can worship together as one family under one mission and one vision together. Uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount this year as we've been unpacking the greatest sermon ever told uh, through our Lord Jesus. And we just finished our series through the Beatitudes, kind of these uh, character attributes of this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And we're at this hinge point where Jesus starts talking about what are the implications of this Beatitude lifestyle. When I was growing up, when I was a child, a young child, uh, I really got, went through this phase like many other children where I was really into uh, learning about and discovering about uh, kind of uh, fighter jet planes, like uh, jet planes like the F-14 and all these different airplanes that the military used and the Air Force used. And I really enjoyed learning about them. And one plane in particular really jumped out that I really enjoyed learning about, and it was called the SR-71. Uh, the nickname the Blackbird because of its black design as well as look. And it's, it's an amazing aircraft at the time in 1966 uh, where it was commissioned. It was the fastest airplane, manned airplane around, even now still one of the fastest airplanes. Uh, and it was used primarily as a reconnaissance uh, plane, a reconnaissance uh, because of its uh, high speeds and high altitude. They could get into certain places and take pictures and, and get out. And even if they discovered it and they would shoot a missile, it was so fast, uh, it would just step on the gas. Uh, probably not the right terminology, but they could just get out of there because it was so fast. And because it was going so fast at such a high altitude, uh, the metal around the frame uh, would get really, really hot. You wouldn't think that, but it would get so hot, almost 600 degrees. So engineers and designers, when they were making this plane, they realized when it was on the ground and it was a lot cooler, uh, they had to build it in a different way. And on the ground, the metal would be all crunched up a little bit, and there'd be a lot of gaps, because when it got to that high altitude and high speed, and the metal started heating up, it would start expanding and be uh, where it was supposed to be. But on the ground, because of all the gaps, even on the runway, it would leak fuel and oil. And as it was taken off, it would just pour all this fuel on the runway, and when they would finally get to that speed or up into the high altitude, they would refuel it for its missions. See, the engineers designed it to be in a proper context, and when in that context, it really had a clear purpose of why it was around. So when design and context align, you have clear purpose. And here in our passage today, Jesus really talks about what it means to be part of this new kingdom through the Beatitudes. He speaks about the poor in spirit, the merciful, the meek, and those who mourn and make peace. And he turned in our passage today, begins to give us the context in which to live this out. Reverend Campbell Morgan of the 19th century, a British evangelist and pastor, wrote this, talking about this passage. Having declared that the supreme matter in his kingdom is character, and having described that character in the Beatitudes, the king showed that the purpose of the realization uh, of character in the subjects of his kingdom is that they may exercise an influence upon those who are outside the kingdom. See, salt is needed where there is corruption. Light is needed where there is darkness. Uh, light is needed where there is darkness. See, Jesus has designed us to be in his image, to be transformed, renewed, and restored. And the context he places us in is this in this dark and decaying world. See, it was easy in that day, as they were hearing Jesus' words, 
to see the darkness and decay as they looked upon the political corruption, as they looked on the injustice for those people who were marginalized, as they saw the eroding of virtues in their society, it was clear for them that the world around them was dark and decaying. But these words are not just for those people on that mountainside 2,000 years ago. They're for us as well and what it means for us to live out our lives, to be salt and light in this world. And I believe Jesus is, uh, through this passage, trying to give us three aspects, three aspects for us to frame our lives around this purpose uh, of salt and light. First, uh, moronic absurdity. You got to stick with me for that. Uh, I'll explain it a little bit. Moronic absurdity. Two, social responsibility. And three, eternal gravity. So first, the moronic absurdity, and I'll explain. Jesus uses two simple but very powerful illustrations to communicate to the people the implications of the Beatitudes. The first illustration, he invokes the idea of salt and that salt losing its saltiness, which is kind of a weird imagery. We know in the time of Jesus that salt was a very precious commodity uh, used for flavoring, but also preserving in a non-refrigeration culture. It was very important to preserve food, uh, so much so that it was even used as salary uh, for payment for people. That salt was so precious. But the phrase of salt losing its saltiness is actually a rough translation of a common idiom at the time. See, the literal translation that Jesus uses here, it says, salt becomes foolish, Salt becomes foolish. And it's hard for us to understand, but that foolishness and the Greek root word of it is moros, where we get the word moron or moronic. And what Jesus is communicating is the utter moronic absurdity of someone who can hear these words through the Beatitudes he just said and did not go and live the life he calls us to. It's utterly foolish, pure foolishness for someone to be transformed by grace and now withhold it to themselves. He gives a parallel illustration in the light and says it's like someone who has a lamp and he puts a bowl over it. What's really the purpose there? It's utterly foolish. And I wonder how do we as a people respond when we see foolishness in action? When we see someone behaving like a fool, how do we respond? What do we think of that person and how do we React. Recently, I heard a story of a man uh, who's suing the fast food franchise Popeyes. Yeah, I, I, it's a great restaurant. Apparently, I enjoy it. Uh, but recently, Popeyes just released a chicken sandwich. I don't know if you've heard about it, uh, but it's gotten national attention of the popularity of this sandwich. And what it is, is they are so popular that when they finally released it, there were these long lines of people. <laughs> and they bought out the sandwiches so quickly that they ran out. And every few weeks, they get a new shipment in, and it sells out repeatedly over and over again. And this man is suing the franchise because, he, and he says, he's wasted countless hours driving to and from Popeye's and never receiving this sandwich. He says, and I quote the article, it says, he feels humiliated and that his friends are laughing at him. Yeah, but it gets better. He's also suing them because he invested or went to a Popeye's fried chicken broker. Yeah, these things are real. Uh, a person, uh, this broker is, what they do is when they find the chicken sandwiches available, they go, stand in line, and they buy as many chicken sandwiches as they can. And then there's a black market. He goes outside the place and he sells them at a higher cost. 
And this man, thinking he was going to get a sandwich, paid $25 and never received that sandwich. Poor guy. This is a real story. You can Google it, I promise. What do you think of when you hear that? It's utter foolishness, right? Who is this guy that he's wasting all this time, wasting the court system and suing over this money over a chicken sandwich? It just sounds foolish. And that same level of foolishness that we observe in this man, that feeling we get, the reaction we get when we hear about Jesus is saying about people who hear his words and don't live it out in the world around them. Utter foolishness. See, it would be impossible for someone not to share this grace, acceptance, and hope with others around them. Jesus has ushered a new way of life, a new kingdom, this upside-down kingdom. And now, in turn, those who have become his disciples, who have heard these Beatitudes, who are living them out, saying, now it's not just about withholding it, but how can we extend it to people regardless of background or history? In any kingdom in that time, in Jesus' time, when a new king or kingdom would come into play, when it was established, which was very common in that time period, what the new king would do, they would call upon new heralds or messengers and say, you, I want you to go from village to village, from town to town, and share the message of the new kingdom I am bringing to you. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples. On the Sermon on the Mount, he's unpacking the character and attributes of what it means to be part of his kingdom. And then he turned, he's calling his disciples to be those heralds and messengers to go forth. Theologian Jonathan Pennington writes this, both the salt and light metaphors are communicating the same idea, that Jesus' disciples are now the heralds of the new and lasting covenant being effected by Jesus. A new way of life, not in our works, but by grace alone. The means that this new and lasting covenant is communicated to others is through us, Jesus is now commanding us to live a life that has an outward component, not withholding, but sharing and expanding, which leads to our second aspect, our social responsibility, a social responsibility, that there is a social dimension to the Christian life. The love of neighbor is explicitly tied to the love of God. The love of neighbor is explicitly tied to the love of God. In this metaphor of salt and light, Jesus makes it clear to the purpose of his followers to impact the world around them. See, the world is prone to decay and darkness, and Jesus' followers have a responsibility to not to disengage from culture, nor to blindly take over culture, but to bring his kingdom into reality. Christians, for the most part, have lived up to that calling. In the early church, it was Christians who extended hospitality, care, and acceptance even beyond their own groups. In that time, it would have been unheard of to extend that care and comfort and hospitality to anyone outside of people that look like me, talk like me, and share the same history as me. But we see Christians in that early church expanding that. They displayed immense generosity. The pagan emperor Julian at the time says, whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Christians devote themselves to works of charity. These impious Christians not only feed their own poor, but ours also welcoming them into the fellowship. Even at the sake of their own persecution as they were being killed and suffering for uh, being a Christian, they were still being salt and light in a way that was bringing questions to other people. Why are they doing this? It doesn't make sense. For longer periods of history, Christians began to take on institutional roles uh, when living out to be salt and light in the world. Christians started adopting this idea of bringing institutions into structure and culture, 
uh, to bring salt and light. They built the best schools, the best hospitals. They built orphanages and shelters and expanded the Christian kingdom uh, in that capacity. Uh, they wanted to make themselves available. They went to the diseased, the impoverished, and the under-resourced and lived amongst them, bringing about these great institutions. But it seems the space for Christians in our current time, uh, Christians and culture shifted from one of engagement to one of a battlefield. It feels culture is seen as the opposition when Christians are required to take on and fight moral issue after moral issue under the guise of carrying the banner of salt and light in the world around them. Rarely do we see love and grace in action as we saw in the early church, nor do we see the lasting societal benefits we see with our institutional endeavors. It becomes just a shouting match to show either how we're opposed to something or how we're trying to stay relevant to something. James Davison Hunter, a professor of religion and social theory at the University of Virginia, assesses how Christians have tried to impact culture and says plainly most of it has been ineffective as culture is winning. And he proposes a new way of thinking for believers to be salt and light. And he calls it a faithful presence within. A faithful presence within. A similar concept by missiologist Michael Frost uh, in Surprise the World talks about living a questionable life. Are you living a life that others are questioning why you live the way you live? How they're seeing the world is just a little bit different. Uh, Pastor Dr. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones in this exposition on the Sermon on the Mount and in this passage specifically says this, Christians become compelling to the world to the degree they stand out as different from the world. The world does not thirst for a religious imitation of itself, nor does it thirst for an us-against-them moral turf war with the zealous and religious neighbors. The world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor, not the kind who would deny their fellow man, take up their comforts and follow their dreams, but the kind who would deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus in his mission of loving a weary world to life. The world also thirsts for a new vision uh, for being human, for pursuing entering friendship and for contributing to a better world. That the world is thirsty for men and women of Jesus Christ to bring a new vision of what it means to live in a better world. Here at Ward Church, as you call Ward Church home, how we see this playing out is our neighborhood, uh, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Last year, we took an initiative where the whole church, we went through a small group study called BLESS, beginning in prayer, listening, eating, uh, serving, and sharing our faith in Jesus. This blessed Bible study has turned into a study as well as a cohort where men and women are keeping each other accountable, how we can be better neighbors uh, to the people that God has called us to. And it's really done a good job of equipping us to have a great lane in which for us to walk in when we think about being salt and light. One of the stories I want to interview right now is one of our elders, Adam Stratton. You can make your way onto the stage. Uh, One of our elders helping lead our session uh, but has really adopted this blessed lifestyle. And I have some questions for you, Adam, uh, that could give some more insight. So what, tell me a little bit what drew you to the blessed study. When uh, Hugh Halter came over a year ago to speak at Ward Church, he was uh, teaching on uh, one of Paul's letters where Paul distinguished between the gifted evangelists and the rest of us. And uh, he said that, that um, uh, we all have a role to play in the Great Commission, but we don't all have to be gifted evangelists. And that really took the pressure off, made the idea of the, um, the Great Commission being more attainable, and that's what drew me to the blessed groups. That's great. And how has it impacted the way you've seen your role in your neighborhood? 
Well, it's really opened my eyes to opportunities to develop relationships with uh, those people that I work with, um, people that I do extracurricular activities with, and uh, people in my neighborhood. Um, it uh, uh, allows me to develop uh, relationships. I'm very intentional about uh, getting together with others, uh, develop a relationship with them, with no strings attached, no ulterior motive. That's really kind of freed me up to live my life, uh, to have fun with people I enjoy being with, uh, regardless of their religious background. And one of the ways I find that's easiest to do is, is in the workplace, I regularly have lunches with others. That's great. And how could you encourage someone here today, either online or here in Preston, in person that, uh, who's interested in having that faithful presence in their neighborhood, work, or school? Well, I'd really encourage you to get involved with one of these blessed learning communities that are forming. Uh, the, the blessed study, whether you participated in one of the small group series or this idea of uh, blessed is new to you, um, these give you practical ways to put these five habits into action and also encourage you to take action. The other thing I would suggest is go ahead and schedule lunch with someone uh, in the next week or two to get to know them better. That's great. And one last question is, how have, you seen, uh, any, have you seen any impact in your neighborhood because of your blessed lifestyle? Yeah, because we're being intentional and because we're developing these deeper relationships, uh, I find in these areas uh, at work and in our neighborhood that we're de developing a greater sense of community. That's great. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. If you're looking for a lane to live out that salt and light, if the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you, uh, there's something stirring in you that says, hey, I want to start living a more of an outward lifestyle. Bless is a great way to jump in. It's not just a six-week Bible study. It's kind of a lifestyle rhythm that you incorporate into uh, your already busy life. So it's not one more thing. It's just how you bring intentionality, as Adam shared, into your life. There's some great men and women uh, waiting to talk with you about how to get involved at the Connection Center, kind of that glowing wall right next to it. Uh, it says group and serving, and there's people ready to help you get connected, either into a blessed Bible study or one of these learning gatherings or cohorts. And they would love to help walk with you in really becoming the kind of people that Jesus is talking about kind of the people that are living and loving like Jesus in their neighborhoods. Really encourage you to step into that. See, the question we have to ask ourselves is what did Jesus really mean when he challenged those people on the mountain to be salt and light in the world? Did he mean to distance yourself uh, from people that are tainted by sin? To stand far back and just point at the sin in their hearts? To let them and label them what they are? Or was he calling people to move closer, to be faithfully present in their lives, to walk with them, to laugh with them, to mourn with them, and to show the true light of Jesus. See, I believe our social responsibility is not just with the people in this room, the people that look like us, think like us, act like us, dress like us, but actually the people outside of this room. See, not just for our own good, but for the good of eternity, which comes to our final aspect, the eternal gravity of it all. Jesus' final words in this section is this, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Such powerful words that Jesus shares. A few Christmases ago, before I had children, I went to visit my parents with Aaron. And as we were there, my uh, mom really wanted us to go uh, see this really famous light show in the South at Callaway Gardens, which is a very... Uh, large garden area and they have this great Christmas light show 
Uh, if you don't know what that is, you drive in your car, you turn off your lights, and they have these beautiful lights showing, uh, tearing all the aspects of Christmas, and they have music playing. Uh, it's a really great experience, and uh, it's really fun if you do it in the proper way. But as we were going through this light show, the car I was driving at the time, uh, it, the lights turn on, the headlights turn on automatically when it gets dark. And there was no way possible for me to turn off the lights. I've had a few engineers come and talk to me, uh, and car manufacturers come talk to me even between the services saying, hey, are there ways we could, there are different ways you could have done that. And I mean, I called them and they said, the design of this car, you could not turn the lights off. And what I was is shining this bright light as I'm driving through this garden, really ruining the experience for everyone around me. And they let me know that I was ruining their experience <clears throat> as they were yelling and honking and I'm trying to defend myself. I can't, I don't know what to do. It's the lights are on. Uh, I don't think that's the kind of light and display that Jesus is talking about where they glorify God. They were not glorifying God. They were definitely doing something else. Uh, but we should ask ourselves, how are we displaying Christ in the world around us? Are others glorifying God because of the light we have in Jesus. A German atheist and philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, once said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers look more redeemed. Very convicting. There's this really funny comic strip called Coffee with Jesus, uh, where it shows what a person looks like having a conversation with Jesus over certain topics and themes. And one of them is kind of relevant for our conversation today, if you can put it up. And the text is a little uh, small, so I'll read it to you. It's about one man who's a business owner and Jesus. Carl says, should I add a little fish symbol to the corner of my landscaping company's logo, Jesus? Uh, to what end, Carl? Obviously, so people will know they're dealing with a Christian company. Well, let's leave it off and see if they can figure that out by your workmanship, work ethic, and honesty instead. Well, it's just a humorous attempt, humorous attempt to convey what Jesus is saying when he calls us to be salt of the earth and light of the world. He's saying really what a true Christian should look like. What are you bringing to the table in your community? Verse 16, Jesus talks about how others will see your good deeds, the work that you do. And instead of using the Greek normal word, normal Greek word uh, for good deeds or work, Jesus uses actually the Greek word callous which actually is better translated, one of the translations is beautiful. So let your light shine before others so that they may see the beauty that you create. So they may glorify your Father in heaven. See, our world is prone to darkness and decay, and we're called to bring beauty into it. That beauty is only shaped by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Tim Keller says that as a Christian, when we're living the life we're supposed to, uh, that we're called to, we begin to reveal the things that are purposely trying to stay hidden. That when we show up, we reveal the dishonesty in the business. We reveal the gossip in the office. We reveal the racism in the neighborhood. Reveal the corruption in the politics and reveal the promiscuity at a party simply by being a Christian. When you show up, you make the racism look like racism. You make the promiscuity look like promiscuity. You make gossip look like gossip. Corruption look like corruption. All this just by living according to scriptures, to the beauty of Jesus Christ. See, the way we handle the pressure, take criticism, treat others at work or at school or even your home, shows the kind of beautiful life Christians have in Jesus 
Christ. See, not with a bumper sticker, not with a post, but our very lives do we show what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You become Jesus, the very light of the world in the arena that God has placed you in your family, in your school, at work, or in, even in your neighborhood. And that's why there's an eternal gravity here. God has placed you exactly where you're to be salt and light. You are the answer how to make this world a better place. Some of us have given up. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us just have isolated ourselves. And you're frustrated and upset and angry at the world that just doesn't get it. And you're tired of all the things weighing down on you. And you kind of just disengage. But the answer to making this world a more beautiful and better place that Jesus is saying is you. That you're the answer on how to, you're the answer, the solution to the problem of how do we make this world a better place, more like the way Jesus is calling us to. We don't stay huddled safe in our church, that the only people we talk to are people that think like us and are Jesus followers, but we go out into the world. We go forth into the darkness and the decay, knowing that we're the only answers, the very means in which God wants to communicate the true light of the world in Christ. But before we go, we have to fully realize who Jesus really is, that we can never go ourselves as the producers of light, but the reflectors. John 8, 12, and 9, 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. We have to remember that we reflect, we don't produce that we don't realize, no, that we, don't, we can't think to ourselves, if I just work harder, if I just become a better person, if I just have a better attitude, that somehow that I can produce enough light and impact the change around me. It's only realizing no matter what we lift up, it's all for naught except in Christ and Him alone. See, that kind of light that's found in Jesus can push back the darkness, can push back the decay of the world and bring true beauty as Jesus intended. It is only finding the beauty in Jesus first that we can bring the beauty in the world around us. If this is you today, someone is thinking to themselves, there's no way the darkness and decay in my own heart can be pushed back. If this is you today, know this, the light of the world first came to you to save sinners like you and I. And that light can push back all the darkness and decay and bring true beauty within so that we can go out and bring beauty to the world around you. All you have to do is ask him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the goodness of who you are. Lord Jesus, that through it all, that it is through your mercy and might and grace that you call us sinners as sons and daughters. And Lord, through your grace and might and power, Lord, that you've enabled, empowered, restored, and released us through the Holy Spirit to be the very agents of reconciliation, to be the very heralds of the good news of this new kingdom that you're bringing in. And by your power and your power alone, Lord, can we make this world a more beautiful and better place in your image. Father, not by shouting louder, but Lord, by being a faithful presence of your grace to our neighbors and to the world itself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.